Once again, good morning. It's good to have you, Grace Community Church. I imagine that several of you are here for the first time watching grandchildren, nephews, nieces uh, make that decision to follow the Lord in baptism, which, as I indicated earlier, is symbolism, but it's more than symbolism, too. It's, a, it's an active step of obedience. It's a spiritual act that God uses in our lives. So... Glad you're here on this day. My lovely bride to answer questions before they're asked after the service is in New York. It came up very quickly. Her son is doing an internship there with filming. He's a a filmmaker. And he is doing an internship there. And so they got a really, Allison and Sarah, they got a really good buy on some tickets up. So that's where they are and hated to miss this day, but we almost couldn't pass it up. Well, um, we have a problem in the United States. I, I know we have a lot of problems in the United States, but we have a, a, a big problem, and I'm not referring to the economic crisis that we have been experiencing, the, the, the worst effects of which may not have been felt at this point. If we don't change our way of doing things, it's inevitable that, that times get much, much worse. But the, but the problem I'm talking about may have actually contributed to this. Our problem in America is that we want, we expect, we absolutely demand that life be fair. And it's just not. And when you have an expectation for something that's never going to happen, creates some issues. We are surprised, are we not, when life goes badly. We expect life to go a certain way, and, and, and that is to go our way, especially when we've planned well and we've worked hard. We want life to, to go as everybody said that it would, but it just doesn't. Much of the world, on the other hand, has a, has a very different worldview, and that worldview is my expectation is for life to be harsh and unfair, and when things go my way, well, that's very nice. Didn't see that coming, and that's, that's, a, that's really nice. Here, we have done everything that we possibly can to make life fair. I mean, we make laws, many of which are based on the law of Moses, most of which, in fact, have some sort of setting in the law of Moses. That, and, and these laws look out for the disadvantaged in life. And so, there are very few disadvantaged people left in America, right? We have laws to keep businesses from getting unfair advantages over other businesses, so that never happens. We even have... Referees, officials to watch over our athletic contest. And we know that premier teams and star athletes never get special treatment by the referees. I can tell you this. Referees have cheated in every game that I've watched Carolina play. Every single game. It's a miracle they ever win. Can I get an amen on that? From the Carolina fans. Only, of course. But really, life just isn't fair, is it? So why this paucity of fairness in America as, everywhere, as it is everywhere else? Well, the fall, the fall of mankind for starters and for enders, frankly. The Bible 
contrary to what we believe, the Bible never promises that God will be fair. It does promise that he will be just and that he will always do the right thing. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to go our way. I mean, if you read the Bible through the lens of the American fantasy, well, let me say that, through the lens of the American ideal of fairness, then you're going to be confused. When you really get into the word, you're going to be confused, especially when it comes to some of the stories that we're reading in the book of Genesis. You're going to be disappointed at the least and possibly even disillusioned. I think it's, it's hard for us to think about God approving in any way polygamy. Now, when I say that, I can't think of any instance where God tells any man to take a second wife, but he makes provision in the law. And he accepts it as a way of life with all the resulting rivalries and slavery and preferring one child over another based on on status and and judgment on a group of people that we would consider innocent when when a follower of God like Abraham has lied to them about his marital status with Sarah and puts them in grave jeopardy with the Lord. What's fair about any of that? What's fair, for goodness sakes, about Callie Moody being at a hospital this morning with a feeding tube being inserted to, to, to try to bolster her 24 pounds? What's fair about that? I met with my kids, all my kids yesterday. This, this great flight that we found for Allison and Sarah was out of Greensboro. And my kids were all gathering in Winston-Salem from the mountains and Holly Springs. And so it was just perfect timing. I ended up just meeting them there. And we were talking. And Liz, my oldest, said... She said, I've thought so much, Autumn and I, I particularly thought so much about mom during February, her birthday and time of her diagnosis six years ago with a brain tumor from which she died a year later, if you're here for the first time. And she said, and, and, and not only thinking about them, and she named off several of our relatives who had who have died. And I said, just think about it. Sarah Moody called me two months after Linda was diagnosed, and they are still to this day just in great pain over that. What is fair about that? Life isn't fair. And so we have struggles when we come to Scripture and we see some of the things that happen. It's equally difficult to live in a nation where culture not only embraces values that are antithetical to a biblical worldview, but, uh, but in a society that is increasingly hostile to Christian values. Society deems Christians utterly intolerant. Ignoring the fact that those who shout intolerance the loudest are likely less tolerant than the people they accuse. We need to acknowledge that there are some aspects of our existence and especially with relation to God that are just plain unfair. And to be honest, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you're on the good side of the scales, just like Abraham was. 
And that's one of the reasons people don't like you because they think you're arrogant and that you think you're the only one getting to heaven and that you're judging them and they don't like to be judged. Doesn't mean life's going to go well. It's going to go like we want it to, that all is going to go well in this life, but it does mean that all is going to end well for those who believe, for those who follow Jesus. For those who believe the promises of God, we will have eternal life from which some, from which many will be excluded. So, but now let's flip right back over to the other side of this page. Before we read this text today, and and, and it just occurred to me as I was standing here before the service, this is a very awkward time for those of you who are just kind of in and out who are here today for the baptism. We're in the middle of a series on Genesis. title of the series, as you can see, is Gospel Origins. The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to Abraham, Galatians tells us. Now, not in the same form that we hear it today. But the way that God deals with man is the same today as it was in the beginning. You're going to see time after time today in this story that we're reading. They're just like us. They were, we are just exactly like these people in the story. And we're also just like the people in the story trying to figure out what is God doing? This just doesn't, this doesn't make sense to me. So before we go into this, before we explore this passage, that will no doubt be challenging to some of you, if, if not many of you. Take a moment to silently affirm your belief in God. Just tell Him that you believe that He exists, that you believe that He is God and you're not, and consequently He can do what He wants to do and that's okay. At the same time, ask him to increase your trust in his heart and in his actions. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief is a good prayer. So just take a moment before we we read our text, if you would. Just close your eyes, maybe, and just say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Our text this morning is Genesis 21, verses 1 to 21. Now as we read, I'm going to stop, just, just make some very brief comments because I'm not going to have as many slides up today as typical. I want you to just absorb this story. You may want to keep Genesis 21 open in your lap because you may have to refer back. And I'm going to mention some other verses you may want to run, write down and track down later or you can, or I will give you those after the service if you if you would like but so I'll, I'll make just a comment or two our custom is often to stand as we read the word and if you would please stand we're going to read Genesis 21 1 through 21 the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham was a hundred. Sarah was ninety. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, 
Isaac, which means he laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as the Lord had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made a laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. I was just thinking about that. This is a day of celebration with his baptism. That was a great celebration that day. But it was quickly marred. But Sarah, verse 9, saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. This word laughing, we see... Difficult side of Sarah in Genesis. The New Testament praises her as a great woman. We see her in these extreme circumstances. And if she just saw Ishmael laughing at Isaac, what is that for her to say? she got to go. No, this word is a very strong word in the Hebrew. It means mocking. He was mocking him. And a lot was at stake that we'll come to as we go. Um, verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, just a, this doesn't mean that she put Ishmael on her shoulder. It means that he, he was hanging on to his hand in the Hebrew. It just it, it doesn't translate well. Ishmael was the last thing he gave to Hagar. He was holding on to his hand for all, for everything in him because he, he loved him deeply. And this troubled him. It hurt him greatly to do what he was doing. Ishmael was 16 years old at this point. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called a Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy just like he had promised Abraham. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. 
He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, this is not the kind of story that we would expect to read about in our day, in our land. And because of the ways that we are conditioned, culturally conditioned, we have lots of questions. So, Lord, as we come to this text, may we come with hearts that trust in you, just like Abraham. Lord, give us the faith that Abraham had, for we know, we know, we have already seen that it was a gift to him. It's a gift to us. And so we pray for this gracious gift of faith to be given to us in Jesus' name. We ask these things. Amen. Be seated. Few things are, are more disheartening than, than broken promises. I mean, when, when promises are broken time and again, good parents learn very quickly not to make so many promises. You know, to say, perhaps, but don't, don't count on it. Few things are more difficult than promises that will be kept, but are for whatever reason delayed. Uh, I saw an interview recently with... Um, Prince Charles, where he confessed that he was leery that he would ever serve as king. It seems that the old boy thinks that his mom is going to outlive him, you know, and Elizabeth. He's, and Prince Charles will never be King Charles. Perhaps he would like for Elizabeth to take a cue from Benedict and step aside. I don't, I don't know. This illustration breaks down in that Charles can only assume the throne if his mother dies or gives up the throne. Uh, If he were to predecease her, he would die having never been king. It picks right back up, though, when you recognize that his son is going to be king someday. Most likely, though, Charles is going to be king, although his ascension to the throne is just going to take a lot longer than he ever thought that it would. Surely Abraham was tempted to think he would never have a son by Sarah. And without question, Sarah was convinced that she would never have a son. Now Hebrews 11 tells tells us that she came around at some point and she believed that God through faith she conceived and had this baby boy. Probably that came after the Lord rebuked her in Genesis 18 for laughing about his promise. God promised and Yahweh always keeps his. He is the God who always keeps his promises. Can you imagine the scene when Isaac's cry just pierced the air in in this tent city in which they lived and there's all this rejoicing going on and 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 Sarah says, who would have believed it? Who would have believed it? Probably everyone was like Sarah, hardly believing that this was happening. It's almost surreal. This is a movie. Everyone except Abraham. Now, Abraham had his moments of doubt as well, and his doubt cost him a great deal. But on the whole, Abraham believed what he couldn't see, which is, again, why Abraham is all over scripture. He's all over the New Testament. What a great role model for us. To believe like Abraham believed. 
Abraham failed in more than his faith, though. Well, essentially it's the same thing. He's failing in his faith. Twice he put his wife's purity in jeopardy by claiming that she was his sister. So as we think back to the last couple of weeks when we were talking about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, why did Lot sin and in some ways up until the time his daughters deceived him at the very end, we don't see Lot doing a lot of bad things. And yet God judged the city that he was in and and there were great consequences for Lot for moving away from Abraham. And yet Abraham does this horrible thing. It's unconscionable for us to think about lying and saying, "This, this woman is my sister, knowing that the king may take her into his harem. He did that twice. And yet, God blessed him. Well, let's just start with this. Everyone fails. In fact, everyone fails spectacularly, even if it's only in one's thought life. You probably expect me to say, well, everyone fails after the fall until they are in Jesus. We do fail because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. It's genetic. We cannot help it. We are wired for failure we are going to make mistakes and while it would be nice to say Jesus changes all of that he does change a great deal of that when Jesus comes into our life we're different people that's what baptism is signifying we're dead to who we were now we're new creations in Christ but we are still going to blow it we're hardwired that way it's who we are The question is not whether we will fail, but what we will do when we fail. See, that's the difference between Lot and Abraham. Every time you see Lot, he's moving away from the covenant community, the blessing in the place that God had said, this is where you are going to be blessed, which is why. In this new covenant, this is our community. You cannot say, well, I'll just... It's just me and Jesus. No, it's not. It's never been just you and Jesus. It's the covenant community. Salvation, in fact, while it is individual, is wrapped up. It's it's expressed in in the, the cloak of a community or in in the structure of community. And Lot was constantly moving away from that. I mean, he he didn't have to leave Abraham, but he did. Then the the kings from the north come and they they conquer Sodom and Gomorrah and they take Lot captive. Abraham frees him. What does Lot do? Go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Lot escapes, why didn't he go back? Why didn't he go back? Abraham, on the other hand, did not allow his failures to define him. Now that's, that's, a, that's an important thing for us, isn't it? Don't allow your failures to define you. Now we don't talk like that because you just can't even speak of failure in our society and get ahead. 
Don't be down on yourself. Don't put your don't do don't don't acknowledge who you really are. But your failures don't have to define you. Now it's nice when you live your life in such a way that others' opinion of you, those opinions don't define you. That's that's a good thing. It's even better when you don't let your failures define you. Now, that is not a license to sin, to just live any way we want to. Once again, what these guys are signifying today when they go under the baptismal waters is to say, I'm dead to who I am. My life is now in Christ, and that means I am a new creation. I'm changed. He's going to cause me to live in a different way. In fact, an attitude of, okay, I'm just going to sin, then I'll repent, is far more consistent with Lot than it is with Abraham. But Abraham repented. He made sacrifices at altars. And he turned his heart toward the Lord over and over and over. And he obeyed God. When God said do something, he did it. Abraham's failures had their consequences though. I mean Isaac's birth was a day of great rejoicing. So was the celebration when he was weaned. But Abraham's fleshly actions some 16 to 17 years earlier fully ripened when Ishmael mocked Isaac and Sarah saw it. Now, again, let's go back and just relive the, recall this story for just a little bit. God promised Abraham that he would have a son. And even though Abraham believed God, Sarah did not. And so Sarah convinced Abraham to have a child by Hagar, her servant. Now, now as ghastly as that sounds to us, it was common practice in that day. If a woman was unable to conceive, she would say, okay, to her husband, have a child by this slave, and then that child will be mine. We'll see that with um, Rebecca and uh, Leah, excuse me, not Rebecca, but Leah and Rachel on down, and their servants have children, and, and the women claim them for their own. If they wanted the child, then, hey, that, that boy's mine. If they didn't, well, I guess they had the choice. Um, <clears throat> almost as soon as Hagar fell pregnant, that's the Aussie influence in my life these days. The rivalry between Sarah and Hagar began. Sarah had convinced Abraham to find a way for fulfilling God's promise for a son since God didn't seem to be doing such a good job keeping his promises. I don't suppose anybody here has ever done that. Tried to make God's will work. Well, I know the Lord wants this to happen. doesn't seem to be happening, so here I go. How do you know? Uh, who knows? That's a hard, that's an impossible thing to figure out completely. This stuff that we're dealing with is hard enough. So when Abraham was successful and the rivalry began, Sarah blamed Abraham for causing the problem. This has to be the only time in history, don't you think, that a wife told her husband to do something and then blamed him for, for the consequences of doing what he did. So I don't even know why that story's in the Bible. It just never happens again. <coughs> like I said, life just isn't fair. <laughs> Look, that goes both ways. That goes all kinds of ways. That happens all the time, doesn't it? We, we're just, just human nature. Like I said, these people are just like us. Hey, do this, and then it goes badly. 
You're the fault. You're the reason. You're the problem. How God, may God judge you for this mess you've gotten me into. That's essentially what Sarah said to him. So Isaac was weaned somewhere around two to three years of age. Ishmael was about 16 at this time. All these years, Sarah and Hagar had despised one another. They just had, there'd been this quiet, simmering feud between them. And her spirit must have rubbed off on Ishmael because when, she saw, when he saw the celebration around Isaac, he started mocking him. And <clears throat> Sarah was infuriated. So much so that she demanded that Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away. Was Sarah really concerned about Isaac's inheritance or did she just use this as an excuse to get rid of the competition? All of the competition. Well, probably both. It's quite clear from Scripture that Abraham loved Ishmael. Again, just another one of those things that this show on the History Channel has portrayed so well, his deep love for Ishmael and the difficulty that he had sending him away. In fact, even after God promised uh, Abraham that Sarah would bear him a son, in one of his times of doubt, he lifted up his voice and he said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham was saying, Okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to have a son. I don't see it happening. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. I've already got this son. And God said, No, it's Sarah. Sarah's going to have a son. It's going to be your son. And it's the one from which these multitudes will come that you couldn't count even if you could number the stars. When Sarah said, get rid of him, not only was Abraham's heart just crushed, Spirit was crushing, but he had quite a dilemma on his hands. I mean, he'd done this before when Sarah had said to do something. Now, he's not really sure whether he should do it again. Fortunately, God helped him make up his mind and said, Abraham, do what Sarah has said, and I'm going to take care of Ishmael. Okay, just how many questions do you have? Well, if, again, if we're looking from an American perspective, a whole lot. Not all of the questions could be answered, primarily because God is God and we're not. And if you require your version of fairness into the mix, then you're never going to be satisfied with the answers. And you're never going to be satisfied with saying, I, I don't know. I, I just don't get it. I can't answer it all. I, I do know this, though. I trust God. So while we're going to attempt to think about this with both an ancient cultural understanding, the way things worked in that day, and also a New Testament perspective, there are some elements of the ways that God works that are just beyond our ability to comprehend. I started to say an embrace, but it doesn't have to be beyond our ability to embrace God's ways. Even if we say, I don't understand them, and I'm certainly not going to try to explain them with some haughty spirit. It's one of the reasons that 
Christians have such difficulty with their message of exclusivity because they don't help people to understand. They don't try to make people understand. But this this offer is open for anyone who will believe. If you will believe you are in the covenant community. When Abraham had a child by Sarah, he was seeking to please God in his own way, not God's way. Another way of thinking about that is he was trying to get to God rather than allowing God to come to him as God had promised that he would do. Abraham had believed initially and he wavered. And as Sean pointed out a few weeks ago, it was catastrophic, catastrophic consequences resulted from his unwillingness to be the spiritual leader of his home. He allowed Sarah to manipulate him into attempting to manage God's will. It was a mistake. I mean, I can hear Andy Griffith saying right now, oh, it was a bad decision. Not not good at all. At all, I should say. And yet... Ishmael, whom God loved and protected and who has been a countless blessing to millions through the ages, was the result of this fleshly. See, that's the thing that we can't. I mean, try to make sense of this. David, King David, takes Bathsheba because he can. He's a king. And has this illicit relationship with her. And when she falls pregnant, he tries to cover his tracks, getting her husband to come home from war, sleep with her so that everybody will think it's Uriah's baby. God won't have any of it. So David has Uriah killed. This is a man after God's own heart. He has her killed, has him killed. God takes the baby in judgment. David repents. Psalm 51 came as a result of his repentance after he was confronted with his sin. And then Bathsheba became pregnant again, was comforted, had a little boy named Solomon, and the scripture says, and the Lord loved Solomon. Make sense of that. You remember back when Hagar became pregnant, she looked on Sarah with this haughty spirit, even though she was a slave. Sarah said, I'll show you who's the slave, and she sent her out into the wilderness. God said, humble yourself. God came to her and said, humble yourself. Go back. It'll be okay. That's what happened, but you know there was this thick tension in the air for 16, 17 years. Now, Abraham did the right thing. He was a good father to Ishmael, but he could not undo what had been done. And there were consequences, even though there was blessing in this bad decision. Sarah, a woman praised in the New Testament, had issues with Hagar and Ishmael all the time she had issues with them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we we, we see all this bad stuff about Sarah, but she was a very dignified, gracious, submissive woman. We just happened to catch these glimpses of her in these difficult times. How many 
times do we regret an action the instant that we, we commit it or we do it or, or we say something and you're just trying to pull the words back, but it's too late. You can't undo what you've done. And like Sarah, we often try to cover our mistakes by blaming others. It's convenient, isn't it? When Ishmael mocked Isaac, though, Sarah knew what was at stake, and she demanded the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. Now, there's, there's, there's a good deal more here than meets the 21st century eye. Had Abraham died and Ishmael, as was the custom, being the firstborn, had received most of the inheritance, then Hagar would have had the upper hand on Sarah. And it is not beyond the realm of possibility that, she could have had them killed. We see the same thing in, in David's children, King David's children later on. So there's a lot going on here that doesn't meet the eye. I, I'm sure that as he contemplated Sarah's demand for her rival's expulsion, Abraham remembered the mistake that he had made some 16, 17 years earlier when he had, we had listened to Sarah and, and gone into Hagar uh, was he going to let her determine the course of his son's life, of all of their lives again? God's answer was yes. I told you, Abraham, that through Isaac, you will be blessed. And, and Isaac is the son of promise. In fact, did you, did you pick up on this in Genesis 21 when we read? Ishmael's name is not mentioned. He's called the son of the slave woman and the boy, even by God. He's called the boy. Is God playing favorites here? Hard to say no, isn't it? Does God love Jews more than he does Arabs? Since you require an immediate answer, I'll give it to you. I wish you could wait. But the answer is no. In Jesus, all barriers are broken down. Absolutely all barriers in, in, in are, are broken down. And, and God doesn't love one more than another. But yes, he does play favorites. And we don't think of that as fair. Now, again, if you, you look at the... Oftentimes, the actions of the people that he favors are far better than the people, the actions of the people that he doesn't. But it just tends to go that way. This conclusion may not make any sense at all to you that God loves us all and yet he still plays favorites. But that's the problem we have trying to put God in categories, especially when we say it's got to be fair. And especially when you deal with God, it's got to be fair. And these categories make sense to me. So I'm going to put God in this box right over here. I, I tried to run this down, but I couldn't find any statistics on it. And even if I had found statistical gold, I would have been suspicious of the source. But I, I'm going to guess that there are more Arabs today, sons of Ishmael, who follow Jesus then there are Jews today, sons of Isaac. Last Christmas, we talked about the difficulty of the doctrine of the love of God. Now, you may say, look, if there's one doctrine, I get it's the love of God. Really? 
When Oprah says God loves you, do you think that means the same thing as when Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, his only one and only unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are at least four ways that scripture talks about God's love. The first is God's unique love for his son, Jesus. Here's the thing that's stunning is that that same love has been transferred to us. When we are in Christ, he loves us that way. We're not Jesus. We're not God. But his love comes to us in unbelievable ways. Then there's the love that he has for the world, the entire world. That's what John 3.16 is talking about. But it's very clear that he has a love, a specific love, a special love for his elect children. His children that he has called out of the world. Now, that sounds different from what I said a while ago about it's open to anyone to choose. It is, but God calls his children out. He chooses us to be his covenant family, and he has a special love for the elect. And then fourth, there's even a special love that is talked about for those who obey his word. Like Abraham did over and over, failures and all, he he was constantly coming back to obey God. You cannot just emphasize one of these loves over the others or else you get an incomplete, in fact, even uh, an incorrect picture of God. They, They have to all be understood as a group. They work together to show God's love. So when God told Abraham to send Ishmael away, he... What was he doing? He was making a distinction between the son of the promise and the son of the flesh. Ishmael was the son of the flesh, or in other words, Abraham had tried to manipulate God. He had tried to please God, if you would. He tried to do the things that he thought would make God happy with him. In Paul's letters, he makes a big deal about the difference between the son of the flesh and the son of promise, who was Isaac, the one he had promised all along. In fact, in Galatians 3, 15 to 16, Paul quotes Genesis 12, 7 when he says, your offspring will, the promise of, of the offspring, let me read it or else I'm going to misquote it. And Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. Now, Paul makes a big deal about this. He said, you know, he's talking in singular to your son. Let's just say son. To your son, I I give this promise. The son of the promise was singular, not plural. And the point that Paul was making was that the promise comes through one, and that one is Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we receive the blessings that are promised to Abraham. Not in the same way we don't have a parcel of land that we say this is where God's covenant community is going to live because he's given this land to us. But we have a home that is better than anything here. And we find it in Revelation 21 and 22. The point Paul was making was that the blessing comes through Jesus, not the Jewish nation. As we want to go to Genesis 12, 1 to 3 and say it does come through. And yes, we have been blessed through the Jews. We've been blessed through the Arabs. We've been blessed through the South Americans. And, and we've been blessed by all the peoples of the world. 
It's not to say that the Jews didn't receive God's special blessing and protection as long as they kept their side of the covenant, which was almost never. Which was also making a point. That it's not about us doing so that God is happy, but it's about God doing for us what we are incapable of doing. So the blessing would come through Jesus and all Jews who believe in Jesus and all Gentiles who believe in Jesus are now Abraham's spiritual children. We, we went over this in detail this past summer in the book of Galatians. And you can find those on the, on, on, online if you want to go back and listen to those. God promised Abraham that he would take care of Ishmael. And he did. He made the distinction between Isaac and Ishmael for many reasons. But first and foremost... To, to distinguish the covenant community from that which is not part of, of his family. And to call out a covenant community for himself. He showed us through the lives of these key, key players in his story. That our best efforts fall short of God's requirements. Our very best efforts. Even if they're made with the best intentions. Not just intentions alone. But actions that come from good intentions. They fall short. These gospel origins in Genesis pointed to the day when Jesus would come and live perfectly through the power of the Holy Spirit, always obedient to his Father's will and plan, and thus become a suitable sacrifice, someone to take our place, a substitute to take the punishment that is rightly intended for us, all sinners. Abraham understood the importance of sacrifice and death to cover sins. Every time you turn around, he's building an altar. Well, he thought he understood at this point, but he's going to, when we see him next week in Genesis 22, my goodness, is he going to understand the value of God providing a substitute in ways that he would have never dreamed possible? Well, what's that mean for us? If you've never believed that God sent Jesus to die for you, please do so. This day and find your place in God's covenant community. Look, all this talk about it's God that does it. It's not us. Here's the deal. If you're here today and you say, you know, all my life, all my life, I thought that I had to do, keep this list. And the don't list is a lot bigger than the do list. But, but buddy, I better be careful to get both lists just right. And then God is going to accept me. And when I get there, the scales will be like this. No. Scales are like this. Boom. We're sinners. We got no hope. But what Jesus did was jump on that other side of the scales. And when we believe in him, boom, it goes just like that. And we're in. Now that's, I don't even, I don't like to use that casual language. It's a big deal. So here's, here's, here's what you need to do. If you have always been hoping that what you do, the money that you give, the the poor that you feed, the good things that you do, and I'm not, all of those are good things, they're, they're good things. But if you're counting on that for God to say, okay, come on in. You're, you're good enough. You're special. You're a lot better than your neighbor was, you know, and to which we would say, if it weren't like that, I know, I know. And God says, there's no boasting in this thing at all. Our only hope is to fall on Jesus. So if if that's what you've been, that's been your story, here's your new story. It's this. It's all through Scripture. 
And, and it was right here with Abraham and Isaac and, and Ishmael. Say to the Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And that apart from what you have done for me, I have no hope. Please forgive me for my sins. And I ask you that because of what Jesus did for me. When he died on the cross, he took my punishment, my penalty. He took my place. He stood in my place. When God's wrath, his righteous wrath, not this meany kind of a God that people want to portray. Not this angry, vindictive. No, this holy, righteous God who cannot. It is impossible for him to allow sin to stand in his presence. And so something has to be done about our sin. That's what Jesus did. So when you say, I believe that Jesus died for me. You believe that he absorbed God's wrath. That was rightly directed to you. Believe that. Believe just like Abraham did. Believe in Jesus. Because we have a fuller picture. A more thorough understanding than Abraham did in Christ. Everything. My goodness. The story next week. When Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac on Palm Sunday. That Sean's going to share with us. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. If you were a follower of Ishmael, you should know that when Abraham fathered, or excuse me, a follower of Jesus, you should know that when Abraham fathered Ishmael, he had already been counted righteous by God for his faith. So, do we make mistakes? Do we act in the flesh after we're saved? Of course we do. And sometimes God uses our mistakes to bring the most beautiful things in life. I fear, though, like Abraham, that we lift our voices even as believers and say, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that the old man might live before you. That I might serve you in my way. That I might impress you with my commitment to you. But while belief always leads to obedience, it's not necessarily the other way around. That's why I often say that the Christian life is about better believing, not, not proper behavior. It's not so much about behavior as it is about belief. Because if we believe that the right way, we're going to do the things that we ought to do. But if we just do those things without our belief, then we become legalist. And we start looking down our noses at other people. And that's when people look at us and they say, uh, no, thank you. If that's what it is, I don't want it. The behavior will, will come But if we have learned anything from Abraham, it is to trust God no matter what. No matter what happens to us and no matter how badly we fail. We're going to see all of that at the highest levels in Abraham's life as we look at Genesis 22 next week. Let's let's pray. Well, God is faithful. He is just and he is worthy of our praise. From Lamentations uh, 22 through chapter 3, 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. So may God bless you all as you go forth this week, helping, him, helping you to grow in your faith 
in your hope and your love towards others. And may he grant us boldness to share that with others. And all God's people said, amen.